Let me pray again for just a second before we get into the Scriptures. Lord, we are uh, dead in trespass and sin until you, by your Spirit, speak words of life to us and give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And uh, Lord, I assume that we're both the redeemed and the unredeemed here this morning and just ask that your word, word would be applied to each in the ways that benefit calling some to new life, or in, Lord, calling others of us who have already entered your kingdom in that new life to hear what you're saying to each one of us. Lord, it strikes me the prayers in the New Testament that say, he who has ears to hear trades on the thought from the old that we become like the thing we worship. And if we worship idols, uh, we can't perceive. Uh, idols can't perceive. Lord, make us alive this morning by your Spirit and your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we've had a real winter again. Um, most of you are old enough. When we were kids, not because it's when we were kids, you know, but because it was really true, uh, we had lots of snow. We had lots of cold weather, you know, in the winter. And it seems like for the past, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, we have had really moderate winters. Uh, if you're in the building community, uh, 30 or 40 years ago, work stopped once the snow started to fall. It was just too cold to put down concrete. They've been building through the winter for most of the last two or three decades. But, you know, in the last couple winters, that's all stopped because it's been cold weather and lots of snow, real winters. I say all that because spring, <laughs> spring is almost here. You know, we've been 70-degree temps and it's cold again, but spring is almost here and this is a good thing. So I'm, I'm making my spring plans. I'm thinking about March Madness is coming up. That's a good thing. And if you're, yeah, if you've got a little bit of the Irish in you, you know, St. Patrick's Day parades will be coming up, March 17th. Uh, one of the things I'm looking forward to, though, when the weather gets nice enough consistently, is to get out on my patio and do a little barbecuing. Any other barbecuers, grillers, smokers? Yeah. You know, um, for me, that means several things. Um, it's usually a weekend, so the work or the labor of the week is over, and you've got an opportunity to take a break. And so when I'm out on the patio, the grill's fired up, and I've got some meat on there, and I smell that meat, you know, it's like, ah, life is good. That, that grilling meat to me says life, because not only are we going to have this good food, it tastes good, smells good, that's, that's all good. But also reflects this larger view of life that I've got some time off, a little time to celebrate. Kathy and I are Juan and Jess or friends like you guys from church. And if I was looking ahead, I've marinated the pork loins and we smoke those slowly, you know. Or we get the chicken or we get the steak out. But sitting there out on the patio with the grill going and the aroma coming off that grill, it's the smell of life. It puts me in mind of all those good things, all the good ways God has blessed us. It's the smell of life. But now, imagine yourself as a four-footed member of the bovine family, Mark. If, if you were a cow and you were meandering through my neighborhood or my backyard and you smelled my grill and your relative on it, what would that smell mean to you? Would that be a good smell? Would that mean life to you, or would that mean something else entirely? Wouldn't be life, would it? It'd be death. 
the same smell to that cow would mean death. To me, it's life. It's life is sort of as good as it gets on planet Earth. If you're a four-footed creature from the cow family, man, that does not smell like life. That smells like death, for sure. It's the same smell. It's the same scenario, but the perspectives are different, and that makes all the difference. And we're in a text this morning that's about smells. It's about aromas, and it's about things that smell good and things that don't smell so good. And sometimes it's only our perspective that makes the difference. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Remember in this letter, Paul is continuing to write to this group he's fairly estranged from. In some ways, he's still explaining himself here at the end of chapter 2. Reading from New American Standard there, he says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, because I didn't find Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia, that is, further up the coast into what would be modern-day Greece. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place the word aroma there just means smell it could be a good smell could be a bad smell the smell the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place for we are a fragrance of christ to god the greek word for fragrance there is euodia that means a good smell inherently something that smells good cologne or perfume or or meat on the grill if you're not a cow Uh, the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, to those who are perishing, this is an aroma from death to death. To the other, to those who are being saved, this is an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Paul qualifies his motivations here. He says, we are not like many peddling the word of God but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Before we get into the smelly part of this text, uh, let's start in verses 12 and 13, talking about open, open doors. Paul says there, when I came to Troas, a door was open for me in the Lord. And you remember we've talked about Paul's traveling plans before. He meant to go straight across the Aegean Sea from Ephesus to Corinth. And he didn't. And instead, he went up the coast, the Aegean coast, to Troas. Now, he says here on one hand, he was there for the gospel of God, of Christ. For the gospel of Christ, and God opens a door for him. So he's going up to Troas, and Troas was also the place that Paul was supposed to meet Titus. So Titus had left Paul in Ephesus. He had taken this harsh letter we've talked about, we assume, over to the Corinthian church. And so Paul is waiting to meet Titus in Troas. So he's going up there to share the gospel on one hand. He's also going up there because that's the meeting point with Titus. Now Paul's anxious to hear from Titus because things are really sticky between Paul and the Corinthians. And he sent this letter that he says, this is a harsh letter. And he's trying to keep relationships together here. And he is very anxious to hear how how have they received my letter? What's happened? We talked about this a little bit last week. There was a man in the church, and whether this is the guy in immorality in 1 Corinthians 5, or whether it's another guy that we're not aware of who'd simply personally opposed Paul, 
Paul had said, hey, you've got to kick this guy out of the church. And they had. And he'd repented and he's turned around and Paul, just in the passage earlier, had said, now that's done its work and you need to restore him. But Paul doesn't know that during his trip that we're reading about here. So he goes up to Troas and he's sharing the gospel on one hand, but he's waiting to meet Titus. And he gets there and Titus isn't there. So he says two things. One, I get to Troas, God opens a door for the gospel. And two, I'm so anxious to hear about the Corinthians that I don't hang around, that I leave. Now think about this for just a minute. You know, in fact, in conversation this morning, Sam, I was talking to somebody about future plans. You know, we pray, Lord, open a door for us. Lord, show me which door to go through. Open a door for us and show me where to go. So Paul gets to Troas and God opens the door for him. And he's sharing the gospel. And things are going great, swimmingly. You know, for a guy who gets chased out of every town he's in, I don't know exactly what this looked like. You know, maybe there's less opposition. Maybe he's just glad not to be kicked around or thrown in jail or beaten or something. Maybe that's the open door. Or maybe he's got really unusually large crowds. We don't know. He doesn't, he, he doesn't elaborate. Or maybe simply lots of folks are trusting Christ as he shares the gospel here in Troas. But he says, on one hand, there's this wide door. I'm here for the gospel, and I'm preaching, and God opens this wide door for me on one hand. That's good. And then on the other, he says, and to that wide door that God had opened for me, I slammed it shut, and I left. And I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> what do you mean you left? I mean, this is the apostle to the Gentiles. This guy's mission, his mission in life is to preach Christ where other people had not yet preached him. It's to be the first out there in front and share Christ and plant churches. And it's going swimmingly in Troas, and he slams the, the door closed that God had opened in order to go up into Macedonia and sort of cut Titus off on his overland route. And the reason he's leaving is to find out as fast as he can, Titus, what happened in Corinth? How did they receive my harsh letter? Where am I at in my relationship with this church? What's going on? This is fairly striking, isn't it? The apostle to the Gentiles slams the door closed, got it open, sharing the gospel in Troas, so he can get up, hook up with Titus more quickly to find out what's going on with those Christians in Corinth and his relationship with them. This is odd. How often do we pray that God opens a door? He does, and then we say, thank you, and I'm going to move on now. Thanks, but no thanks. You know, I think there's probably a couple dynamics going on here. One is this, you know, we're all called as Christians, and certainly Paul knew this, we're called to mission. That is, we've been given work to do. We have a job description to fulfill. As Christians, you think of something like Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples in all the nations. And the apostles had that uniquely, Paul had that uniquely, but all of us as Christians, we're supposed to make Christ known. And that's mission. And Paul was on a mission in Troas on one hand. But also within that we have relationships. We develop relationships along the way. And at this point, Paul was so concerned about the relationships with those in Corinth that he stopped his mission temporarily to go take care of the relationships he already had established. In my mind, I think of this a little bit like 
If I'm a father and I have a troubled child, I may leave work early, the work that sustains my family. I'm going to work for my child's benefit. But I may leave work early because I know Junior's got a problem and I need to make sure Junior's okay. Or I need to make sure Junior and I are okay. So I may stop my mission for a time because a relationship takes a priority or a precedence over that. I may come back, and I don't know if Paul in the time he left, maybe he thinks I'll come back to Troas. But he left his mission, temporarily at least, because he was more concerned at the time about the relationships with this church. The other thing I think that was going on here also, though, you remember in the early church, when you read the story of Acts, you see that it's always Peter, where the Holy Spirit is given to each new people group, uh, Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and the Gentiles. It's always Peter that's there. And I think this was in fulfillment. Jesus' words to Peter in the Gospel, where he says, I give you the keys of the kingdom. And Peter is there each time the kingdom is open to this new group and the Holy Spirit's given. So, you know, Samaria believes in Christ, but they don't get the Spirit until Peter and John come up in Acts 8. And it was only then. And, and I think part of that was to make sure each new group knew they were tied to the Christians in Jerusalem. In the early church, there were no Protestants and Roman Catholics. There were only Christians. And apostles in one group, in one church, local church, they would travel and they'd speak to any other church. They were all connected. And I think Paul was especially concerned that this church in Corinth was going to become a rogue element, that there was going to be a schism, that there would be a division. If they rejected his apostleship, he is the key guy from Christ to the Gentiles. If they say, we're not listening to you anymore, where does that leave the church? And what else might follow? So on one hand, he's in Troas, and he's got this great success going on. And he says, I leave, I close that door on that opportunity so that I can run up the road and catch up with Titus more quickly to see what's going on in in Corinth. And I think part of that's probably relational. And part of that's probably strategic too. The Corinthian church can't afford to lose me because it's not just, Paul's a very selfless guy. It's not that Paul's all that, it's that Christ uses Paul. And if if they chuck Paul out, they're chucking, in essence, Christ out, Christ's authority, and Paul's concerned about this. So, sometimes when you and I uh, making plans in life, the things that seem at the time most pressing, or our priorities, or this is what I've really waited to do, sometimes you'll find that even though there's an open door, it's not the one you're supposed to take. That God may still say, In another time or under other conditions, this would be a great place for you to go or a great ministry for you to invest in or a great relationship to pursue or whatever, but not now. There's other things that are more pressing, and that's okay. Sometimes it's not the thing that appears to be the open door that we need to pursue. And in this case, Paul did not do that here. I want to break just uh, briefly, too, on half, the first half of verse 14. Uh, Paul there says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. You know, the Corinthians are accusing Paul of being double-minded. You say one thing, but you do another. You told us you were coming, but you aren't. So on one hand, 
Paul's talking about being led in Christ's triumph. And I think he's saying this intentionally. I had planned to leave Ephesus, go across the Aegean to Corinth, but I changed that plan. I had planned to go to Troas and wait for Titus, and I threw that plan out too. And so even though Paul's plans, they're sort of going down in smoke, he still looks at his life and where he's at and where he's going, and he still says this at the end of the day, Christ is leading me. You know, even though I think I'm going one way initially and I go left, and I think I'm going the right way now and again and I take another turn. He says, even though it doesn't look like my plans are bearing fruit, he still says, no, Christ is still leading me. And not only that, Christ is leading me in his triumph. You know, Paul gets kicked around every place he goes. He gets disrespected. You know, he's in jail, he's beaten. You know, you go through his list in Philippians or 1 Corinthians later. He takes a beating, you know, and keeps on going. But he says in all of that, no, Christ is leading me. These aren't mistakes. And he doesn't just lead me, but he's leading me in his triumph. It doesn't look triumphal. But Paul says, no, I'm being led in Christ's triumph. And I think this is hugely important for us today. Um, It is really easy to feel like I developed these plans for life. And success in my mind looks a certain way. And I make plans towards that. And God's in plans. I mean, you read something like Proverbs or the wisdom literature. We plan for the future. We save money. We take heed to the ant, those sorts of things. I'm not, not speaking against planning in general. But we make our plans, and, and as often as not, they get upended. They don't work out. And it's easy to feel like somehow that's a failure. I wanted to do this, and, and I couldn't. Or I wanted to go there and it didn't work out. I thought I was going to be invested in this ministry and I'm not. You know, I thought uh, by the time I had gray hair on my face and on my head that I'd have this kind of success and, and it doesn't look that way. Life has not turned out that way. And it'd be easy to feel like failure. And if you look at Paul's life sort of from an outside perspective, he's not, it's not glorious. It's a hard, hard road. Day after day, every place he goes. On one hand, you could say it looked like a terrible failure. But Paul says of his life, no, God's leading me. He's getting me where he wants me. And not only that, but as he leads me, I'm actually enjoying Christ's triumph. You know, if we're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you read Romans, you know that you've been buried with Christ. You died with him on the cross, you've been buried with him, and you've risen with Christ. And Christ sits today at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He's victorious over sin, over Satan, over death. Jesus is right now today. And you are Christ's. And everything Jesus has, you have, you possess. Sort of in a, a, we might say a token form or a shadow form. It's not, it's fullness yet for sure. But Jesus conquered. He is the world conqueror. And so as you and I make our way through our life, whether our plans get upended or not, Paul says of his life, Christ is leading me. And it's not a failure. He's leading me in his triumph. Sometimes what looks like failure isn't. It's Christ's triumph. And as the Lord leads us, whatever our plans are, however they 
turn out or they don't turn out, if you're a Christian, you've already been united with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. You have every blessing in the spiritual places and the heavenlies in Christ, Ephesians 1. Christ's victory is your victory. It's my victory. And every day for us, if you get up and your, your back hurts, you've got headaches, every day for us is a victory parade. Christ is leading us in His victory every day as a Christian. That's a cool thing. You know, 14a doesn't sound like much. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. That is your life and that's mine. It's not a failure. It's triumphant. Even if it doesn't always look like that here and now and more often than not, it doesn't. You know, Paul wrote Romans right after he wrote this letter. So probably months later. And in Romans 8, he has a similar theme there. He quotes from the Old Testament and he says, For your sake, Lord, we are being put to death all day long. We were like sheep being led to the slaughter. It's like that's, that's failure at its worst. And it's death. It's not success. It doesn't look good. But he says, In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For a Christian, death is not a loss, it's a gain. You know, Paul says in Philippians, if I die, I depart, and I go, and I be with Christ, which is far better. That the worst thing that can happen to us in life on this earth is we die, and when we die, we go, and we, we get to be with Christ face to face. It's the beginning of our eternal presence with Him. We have eternal life now. That relationship's already started. But Paul says to be in heaven with Him, in His presence, even better. So on one hand, the worst failure, death by execution, Paul says, man, it's life. It's gain. It's not, it's not just getting by. It's overwhelmingly conquering for the Christian. Because as Christ is, so are we. Now, <clears throat> I'd encourage you to make plans in life and the things that we can. And we adjust those as we go. But you know, James in James 4 verses 13 through 15 says, don't say to yourself, I'll go to this city, I'll stay there for a year, I'll make this much money, etc. It's folly because we can't see down the road. But he says, say, if God wills, Lord willing, say, we will. Lord willing. We see that our plans are subject to God and even if it looks like failure short term, that doesn't mean in Christ's economy it's failure our changed plans, our upended plans for life. We propose and God disposes. We'll look at verses 14b through 17, and this is where we'll hang our hat. This is a great passage about smells. Uh, just rehearsing this again for just a second. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and makes known through us the, the smell of the knowledge of Him in every place. We are... Uh, a fragrance, a euodia of Christ to God among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To one we smell like death, leading to death. And, and to the other we smell like life, leading to life. <clears throat> this could mean a lot of things. Paul could have a lot of things in mind here. But it seems writing to Corinth, to this church in the Roman Empire, it seems like Paul is referring to the Romans' triumphal marches. And uh, I, think, I think these would uh, 
you know, St. Patrick's Day Parade here in Topeka, if you go there and you say, this is what it's like in Rome, that wouldn't quite be it. Um, the triumphal march in Rome happened not very often. A Roman general and his successful army would be marched into Rome to celebrate their victory. And they had to meet certain criteria or this simply didn't occur. So just things like they had to have killed uh, over 5,000 of their enemy in this battle and suffered minor losses in comparison. They had to be taking new ground for Rome. If they were simply resecuring something that had been lost, it didn't count. Uh, there were criteria that the Roman Senate had to give their stamp of approval and say, this is a real victory. This is the kind of victory that we say, this is it. This is what we're after. If it didn't meet their criteria, and there were several, this didn't happen. But when it did, they rolled out the red carpet for this general and for his army. And they decked the city out. And the general and his army would wait outside the city of Rome and all the inhabitants would come onto these central streets and they'd be dressed in their best. And they'd be throwing garlands and flowers and incense onto the street in front of the general, the, the conqueror, the victor, and his army. And the temples were filled in Rome. The priests were busy and they were burning incense and sacrifices. And so if you were in this victory parade, if you'd ever witnessed one, it would be sensory overload. It would be the most significant thing you could remember. If you were lucky enough to be in one of these, it'd be the high point of your life. And you, the sights would be overwhelming. All of Rome would be turned out for you in all their best. And they would be cheering for you and for your general as you march up the street. And mixed with all that, there would be these smells. The aroma would come up of both the sacrifices and the incense. And so as you marched up in this victory parade, sensory overload, I see it, I hear it, and I smell it. And as you're one of those soldiers, or that's your, you're the general, when you smell that, it's life. It's life as good as it gets. It's victory. It's I'm home. The battle's over. The victory's won. And I'm home. And the Roman general would go up to the Jupiter temple and he would offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. And the party was on. It was life as good as it got. I see it. I hear it. And I smell it. Man, life was good. Life. Success, victory. Now there's another side to this parade, of course. <clears throat> because in front of the general and his army, there was another group of people that was in this parade that probably would chose not to if they could have helped it. Because these were the conquered. These were the vanquished. These were the enemies of Rome that were taken alive in this campaign. And guys, they're marching in the same parade up the same streets, seeing the same things, hearing the same sounds, smelling the same smells. And you know what it all means to them? It all means death. Because they're on the wrong side. They're the losers. They're not the winners. The Romans won. And they lost. And guys, as that general from Rome goes up the hill to the temple of Jupiter, do you know what happens to those prisoners? They're led the other direction and they are executed. They're taken to their death. 
This march of triumph, if you're the Roman general or you're his soldier, is life as good as it gets. It's the smell of life. It's the sweetness of success. If you're a prisoner in that parade, it's life as bad as it gets. It's the reminder that we lost. It's destruction behind us and it's death in front of us. Same smells, same sights, same sounds. And it depended on which side of Rome you were on that determined, does that smell like life? Or does that smell like death? Am I going to glory and a celebration? Or am I going to despair and to death? Same place. Everything's the same except which side you were on. Paul says in this passage that the aroma of Christ is tied to the knowledge of Christ. That is, that as Paul was sharing the gospel, people around him were smelling Christ. It was the aroma of Christ. And as he made Christ known, they smelled this aroma, and they said, man, that's the truth, and I believe it. That's life, and I accept it. And it's the aroma of life that leads to life. And for others, they said, no thanks, not interested. And the message of Christ smells like death, doesn't smell good, and it leads to death, Paul says, to those who are perishing. In Paul's picture, King Jesus is the general, and he's already won the victory. He's conquered the, the foreign enemy, Satan. He's conquered sin and death. And he has marched through the streets, as it were, and he's gone up to the temple, as it were, to his father. And all, it's, all of it's good, and it's all about life. And when you and I present the gospel, we are, as it were, with Christ in his triumphal parade, proclaiming the message about Christ, which is the aroma of Christ. And I love in this passage that it says, we are a fragrance, a good smell of Christ to God. Do you know that when you share the gospel with others, when you affirm the gospel the way you live, it's as if God the Father looks down and He goes, that smells good. That's life. That smells like my son. And for the rest of the world, the world that's perishing, it's as if God takes a smell and it's like rancid meat. It's rotten and it's foul. When Christians share the hope of Christ, God the Father says, that smells good to me. The proclamation of the gospel and the affirmation of the gospel in the way we live, it's as if God the Father looks down, takes a deep whiff, it's like he's on his patio and it's the weekend and the work is over and everybody's home. Ah, that smells like my son to me. There's a passage, if you remember back in Genesis, when Isaac's getting ready to bless who he thinks is Esau, but it's not. It's Jacob. Remember Jacob's tricked him? But he puts on Esau's clothes and he puts on some goat skin on his neck and when he comes into Isaac, do you remember what Isaac says? He smells him because he's blind. He can't see. He can't recognize which son it is. But he smells him. Ah. 
He says, the smell of my son is like the smell of the field. It's like life to this old shepherd. I smell him. Ah, that's my son. And it's the aroma of life. And when you and I make Christ known to others, it's the smell of life to God. If you want to please God, if you want to look like Christ, that's a good thing. How about smelling like Christ? That's a good thing. It's like putting on our cologne. We're sharing the truth of Christ with others. It's an aroma to God. It's also an aroma, of course, to the folks we're sharing with. We mentioned, Stan mentioned, and I'd encourage you if you can to go, March 12th, there's an apologetic weekend, live web event at Washburn University. And it'll be great. But guys, in, in contrast to that, let me say this on the other side of apologetics. I think that Christians mistakenly think that if we know apologetics to the nth degree, we'll be able to convince people of the rationality of the gospel, the reality of the biblical claims, that somehow through the right kind of explanations, we'll be able to do what Paul says can't be done, which is to remove the offense of the preaching of the cross. You know, in the first letter he wrote to the Corinthians, he says, I'm not, I'm not preaching to you worldly wisdom. I'm saying something that's offensive to people. That you're sinners and you're alienated from God and God has sent His Son Jesus to pay the penalty for your sin and through trust in Him, through graciously accepting His grace gift, you're saved. Paul says this message is offensive. It stinks to the world around us that's perishing. The gospel stinks. Guys, there's no way to clean up the gospel. It is offensive. And we don't need to apologize for that. I think apologetics are primarily for Christians, not for pagans. Some people really need to have some hurdles removed, and that's a good thing. If you can say, well, let me tell you this about Genesis and when it was written and these things, that's helpful. Primarily, I think apologetics are for Christians because they help us understand why our faith and our trust in the Scriptures, the reality of Christ and God, really makes sense. But apologetics don't convince people that Jesus smells good. And they never will. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The word of the cross, the gospel, that to us smells like life, to them smells like death. To us is entirely desirable. To those who are perishing, don't want it, don't want to hear it, take it away. It's like rotten meat. I don't want to smell any more of that. So when we present the gospel, make sure it's Christ, it's the message of Christ that saves. It's not you and me. And God's Spirit uses the truth about Christ to bring people to Himself. And I'll bet if you look in your own life, you'll see somebody shared the gospel with me and it made sense. And maybe if not the first time, the second time or whatever. I realized when I became a Christian at 19 on the K-State campus in the student union, I'd heard the gospel before, but it was so parsed up, I didn't get it. I didn't understand its centrality. And the guy says, this is the deal. All he did was share the four spiritual laws. And I got it. It was no different than before. I was no different than before. The message was the same. And now it smelled good and it made sense. And it has ever since. We cannot remove the stench of the gospel from what we say to other people. It cannot be done. And if we've removed the offense of the cross, there's no way we're telling the truth about Jesus and the world and life as it is. It's impossible.
So be, be shrewd in our own minds, be fully convinced in our own minds and apologetics. If you interact with other people, really have questions about how can that be or how could that happen. To know some things about apologetics can be very helpful. But apologetics do not, confer, uh, do not bring about conversion. People believing the message about Christ, that's conversion and that's life. And that's where we need to hang our hat. Jesus was highly offensive to people, wasn't he? I mean, he's the light of the world. He's the, he's the creator of the world. He comes to his own and his own receive him not. You know, he's highly loved by some and just hated and despised by others. And that'll be true for us too. And guys, there's no getting away from this. You're going to stink to some people. Deal with it. And you're going to smell really good to others. And that's good. But you'll smell good to God. And he'll take a deep breath and he'll say, Ah, they smell like my son. I wonder how we smell. I wonder how strongly we smell. I meant to put on some cologne this morning so that when I walked around later, you guys would say, man, he smells good. <laughs> I wonder how strongly we smell spiritually. <laughs> yeah. I always forget so many things on Sunday morning. How do we smell spiritually? Uh, do we reek of Christ? Are we sharing the gospel? And guys, we, we pay a lot of lip service to this about communicating the gospel to others, but I think there's very little follow-through. And I mean for us in this room right now. We talk about sharing the gospel, but we don't do it. But that's what Paul's talking about here. The aroma is the knowledge of Christ. And that's what we proclaim to others. We're going to really stink to some, and that's okay. And we're going to really smell good to God and to some others, and that's good as well. Let me close with John 11. This is another passage about smells. Uh, it's well known because it's a passage about resurrection. It's a key passage in the Bible about resurrection, isn't it? You remember the story? Uh, Mary and Martha, friends of Jesus, they send a message to Jesus and they say, Hey, Lord, your friend, our brother Lazarus, he's sick. Would you please come back and would you, would you serve him? Would you heal him? And Jesus says, Nope, I'm not doing it to his disciples. They don't go down. They hang around. They tarry. They wait. And eventually they get down there. Mary and Martha say, Lord, if you'd been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, well, you know, I've got a solution to that because I'm the resurrection and, and I'm the life. And he stands before the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus weeps. The reality of death. His friend really died. And then he says... In verse 39, remove the stone. Roll the stone away from that stone crypt. Roll it away, uncover it. And Martha says, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. Now, if you're reading King James, I'm sorry, I'm not a big King James advocate. I like something a little more modern. But I love the way the King James reads this. Lord, by this time he stinketh. There's no doubt about it, Lord, this guy stinks. You sure you want to roll that stone away? And of course, the Lord cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, and Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. 
Jesus is the one who speaks life to those who are dead. Jesus is the one who can come to those who are spiritually dead and give them life, can speak and cause those who are dead, like us, to come alive spiritually. And Jesus is the one who can go to the place of stinking death and make it smell like life again. If you're not absolutely sure this morning that you're a Christian, if you died today, would you go to heaven? If you're not 100% sure, what a great day to accept Jesus' offer of life. And as you hear the truth about Jesus proclaimed to say, smells good to me, would you rather march in Jesus' victory celebration or perish? Or perish. This is another thing we don't talk about much. My good friend Rich Scoggin was here with us last summer, maybe, a year or so ago. Talked about the reality, guys, that people on this earth are perishing forever, spiritually. They're dying. Separated from Christ in a Christless eternity. And so I'm not joking when I say this. We choose that aroma of Christ when we smell it and we make our choice. We choose the victory parade with King Jesus to the gates of heaven to rule and reign over this earth and this world and this universe forever in his presence fullness of joy or we choose to be prisoners marched off to death that's our choice this is a simple choice for me if you don't know a hundred percent you've trusted christ do so today all all we do is say lord i realize i'm a sinner i accept your payment on my behalf and you move from death to life you move from the side of the enemy into the army of king jesus You gain eternal life now. You smell like Christ now. And your eternity is marching every day, led in Christ's triumph to heaven forever. This is a good day. It's a good parade to be in. I was never a fan of parades. My mom loved them. She'd want me to take her to the parades like, wow, this is so lame, you know. This parade, you won't want to miss it. You won't won't want to be the perishing part of the parade. You'll want to be the celebration part of the parade. And for us, for those of us who know Christ right now, say this all seriousness, how much are we giving off the aroma of Christ? Does God the Father look down on our life? Does He, when He takes that deep breath in, is He smelling His Son from us? And if we stink to others, guys, that's okay. If we're offensive to others, that's okay. When God our Father smells... Is it the aroma of life? Is it the aroma of His Son? Are we making Christ known to the world around us by what we say and by how we live? Lord Jesus, I am uh, thrilled that You're one day going to ride a white horse, that the armies of heaven, I believe, will be in that army, Lord, will be returning from heaven to this planet. You're the King of kings. You're the Lord of lords. You'll put down, Lord, all rebellion. You'll bring in a reign of peace. And eventually, Lord, this this earth will be consumed. It will be transformed and reborn as we have been. And your eternal reign will begin. Lord, thanks for all of those here who have smelled Jesus and said, that's life. And Lord, for anyone who hasn't yet, I pray that your spirit would be at work in them today to smell Christ and to say yes to life. In Jesus' name, amen.